Hello, I'm Josh Gordon. This is SCI TV. I'm joined, as often is the case, by Dr. Ken Pendleton. Ken, how are you today? I'm doing okay. I'm happy to be here, but uh, not under these circumstances. I'm, like a lot of American soccer fans, in a state of shock right now over what occurred on Tuesday night. And I, I will say that, and I often tout your credentials in this space, there are very few people who have followed soccer internationally and soccer in the U.S. more closely and with more passion than you can. Well, let's put it this way. The last time the U.S. didn't qualify uh, was when they lost a game to Costa Rica in Torrance, California, in, in, in for the qualifying for the 1986 World Cup. And I made all my friends watch it on a Friday night in my early 20s, much to their chagrin. And so I've seen us go from absolute nowhere, you know, nowhere to qualifying for, you know, World Cups for the last 32, you know, since 1990 to watching to, to the point where we thought it was inconceivable they wouldn't qualify, but yet the inconceivable occurred on, you know, occurred on Tuesday night. So Ken, Tuesday night, two to one, lost to Trinidad, Trinidad and Tobago. And a ripple effect. My Twitter feed blew up that night. Things got really ugly. Um, I'm assuming that the red phone at Fox Sports got picked up and a lot of calls were made given that they had a $200 million investment in the World Cup. And we had a few immediate reactions. So we had the president of U.S. soccer, uh, Sunil Gulhai, I'm butchering Gilotti. names here. Gelati. Gelati, butchering names here. This is why I'm the interviewer and you're the interviewee on this one. I basically said you don't make wholesale changes uh, based on the ball being either two inches in or two inches out. So let's hold that thought for a moment. And then the other one was from the manager saying, nothing has to change. I'm going to assume that maybe you have a counter argument to all this. So could you step us through a little of the background? And I'm going to poke you with a lot of questions as we go. Okay. Well, let's do what I like to do first, which is always acknowledge what's true about what uh, Gelati and Arena said. First of all, it was a matter of inches, not only in the United States game, but uh, a, you know, a goal in one of the other two games could, should have been disallowed. Um, the, the second point that's right about what they said is that, you know, the United States probably will qualify for world cups in the future. And there's reason to think that this was an, ex this was for whatever reason that we, we have a real problem producing players between the ages of 23 and 27. And we have a, a very good young generation coming through and that we probably won't run into this problem again in, in the future. So, so I can see why they say, well, the system is where the fact that we have a promising, maybe our most promising generation ever coming through, led by Christie and Christian Pulisic, suggests that maybe the future looks bright, so we don't want to rip everything up, you know, with that being the case. So, is there, so there, I'm not saying that they're, they're totally wrong, but first of all, the optics are terrible. When you lose to Trinidad and Tobago, a, a country that's a, you know, a small fraction of the size, 1.2 million people compared to 325 million, can get eliminated from World Cup. It, there's there's some something is seriously wrong. You may not want to use the word crisis. Maybe at the end of the day, you decide to stay the course. But first thing you should say is, let me be clear. Something is seriously wrong, and we have to reevaluate our system from stem to stern, from top to bottom, to see if there if we what to see what kind of changes need to be made. Right. That that that's the you know the very minimal you need to do. The optics, just from an optics point of view, it's terrible. From a structural point of view, it's the it's the wrong comment to make. So, but the bigger problem with this comment is that it, 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 this should never have come down to a match in Trinidad and Tobago. Four years ago, when, in, during the qualification, the U.S. won seven of their 10 games. This time they won two. 
That not only did this qualification go disastrously, that has actually been in keeping with how the U.S. has performed at international level since the last World Cup in 2014. They lost the 2015 Gold Cup. They lost a playoff with Mexico to go to the Confederations Cup. They there's been there's been terrible performance, like I mentioned, with the players that are now between 23 and 27 have failed to qualify for two straight Olympics. Had done very poorly at U17 at the under 17, under 20 level. It, you know, so the, so there was clearly a, a, for a country that had in, where the game is increasingly popular and an increasingly large number of kids are playing. Why are we plateauing or even declining? Why did it ever come down to a matter of inches to make the World Cup? That's so the, uh, that's the part that shocks me about that comment. Again, I think when I hear what you're saying and you're clearly not in the camp that nothing has to change. Um, what are the things that are working in terms of alignment and what are the things that are really out of alignment and need some adjustment here to get this train back on the tracks? Okay. Well, I think we let's, I think there's two primary areas that are going to need to be discussed here. One, and, and, and maybe the best way to get it is I, I've come to think of it like a concentric circle the last two days. And that if, if at the center of that circle, the part that we're the, again, the comment about inches actually makes a little sense is, is did we, did Bruce Arena make the best choices tactically and in terms of his lineup on, on Tuesday, right? So that's probably the least of concern for us from a conflict management point of view. Now, me as a long-term soccer fan, I can't help but point out that on Friday, it was very, when they beat Panama soundly, as a Panama coach said after they could have scored 10 goals, that he played three forwards up front because they, they needed a win and the U.S. needed a win and they were playing at home on a very good pitch, on Tuesday, they only needed a tie to assure qualification. They were playing away, away, you know. Yet they yet they played the same three forwards, even though the pitch was terrible. In this, you know, in the need, and obviously the needs were very different. So there's a real question about whether you made the right tactical or person and, and personnel changes. Arena didn't make any personnel change at all, and and so, but the circumstances were very different. Now, so there's a real there's you know whether that was a good decision or not. I'll leave that. Uh, that's a discussion I'll have with my friends down at the pub. But the, but then the second level is where it starts to become more interesting from a larger structural point of view, which is did the United did the United States players who were chosen in the squad were they optimally prepared? Now, normally we sort of take that as a given to some degree, but in this case, four years ago, the then manager of the U.S. national team, Jurgen Klinsmann, made the heretical comment that that he wishes the, the United States players would play abroad rather than playing in major league soccer, because the quality of the competition is going to be more likely to bring out the best of them. Now, this is a serious issue from institutional alignment. And indeed the president of uh, uh, the commissioner of major league soccer, Don Garber publicly rebuked Klinsman or and, and they called a press conference to try to paper over this deep disagreement. Right. So basically, you can understand why from Don Garber's point of view and from the from the development of U.S. soccer, it's not a great thing to say, hey, the best American players should not play in the United States when you're trying to build what you call a major league. Right. So in this squad, Arena chose 18 players who were for major league soccer players. He didn't start his mo- perhaps his most experienced defender who's playing in the English Premier League, which even Don Garber would have to admit is a higher quality league than major league soccer. And indeed, the person who he probably would have played in, instead gave up an own goal in the game, right? And, and an awkward, unusual own goal. But would, would Jeff Cameron, the player playing in Great Britain or in England, may, have made that mistake? Well, we'll never know. But 
it's clear that Bruce Arena, one of the things he said is that he had great confidence that major, he could choose a team that was founded around Major League Soccer and qualify. He didn't do that. So we have a, there, this issue that Clint's been raised is alive and well. And I should point out, in most of the rest of the world, it would be a kind of, yeah, of course, duh. If our league isn't as good as a foreign league, our best players should be going to foreign leagues so that they're optimally prepared. So players from soccer-rich countries like Serbia or Croatia or Austria are almost inevitably going to migrate to other countries to play to, to apply their trade professionally by way of giving their best performances for their countries. So, so that's the that's the second level of this. Is did you optimally prepare the, the players? That's related is the third level. Did you pick the best players? And again, this gets to did you choose the best twenty six players or twenty three that you can include in any individual game squad? Are you really saying that 18 of the best 26 players were playing in Major League Soccer at this point? I can tell you Jurgen Klinsmann would have chosen several other players who were playing abroad. And, 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 and the best player in the 2014 World Cup, Fabian Johnson, who's German-American, you know, which means mostly German, um, he would have undoubtedly been in this squad. So there's that question. But the biggest one, and this is what really I think the primary focus should be, is – how come we don't have more quality players? How come we're plateauing or even declining? And I think that's the, after all the development that's occurred in the wake since the 1994 World Cup, the coming of Major League Soccer, the youth, the youth explosion the last 25 years, the fact that games are on TV, they get English Premier League games, get great TV ratings, World Cup gets great TV ratings. How come we're plateauing or declining? And I think that's the real question. That's the larger one that should get the, the, the majority of the focus. And kind of in a perfect world, you'd imagine that Major League Soccer would be producing the types of players that should be high-quality national team caliber, right? That, I mean, if you're talking about true alignment, both MLS and the U.S. men's national team need – to be producing great players who are visible, who are recognizable to succeed, don't they? Yes. In an, ide- in an ideal world, there's the interests of Major League Soccer and the USSF and the, and the U.S. men's national team should all be aligned. That basically Major League Soccer could, you know, would be a world-class league, which has been Commissioner Garber's stated goal. Therefore, U.S. players would be would 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 not would by playing here would not only promote the game in the United States, but they would actually enhance their own development individually. And of course, the USSF would be this lovely umbrella organization that essentially was promoting the interests both at the same time, right? But that's that's not that's 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 not Major League Soccer is still that's still not part of the foreseeable future. And by I don't that and I use when I use the word foreseeable, I mean that that. In the sense of right now, given the current structure that's in place, I can't see a point where we would mention Major League Soccer in the same breath as the English Premier League or Spain, Spain's La Liga or Italian Serie A or the German, German Bundesliga. And Ken, one of the things you know, I'm often hearing about the talent in the pipeline. So you hear about the U17 team being really successful and dominating on the world stage. What, why isn't translating? I mean, do we need to just have more cook time or is there something fundamentally going wrong from that transition? You mentioned that there's that age gap or we're not seeing the quality at that world stage. Is that just a time issue or is it that we'll continue to have a gap in that age range, no matter how successful our younger teams are performing? Uh, well, well, let's, let's back up a little. So when, 
from the time the United States qualified in 1990 for the World Cup, they were still playing a lot of players who were college players and they were hopelessly out of their depth, right? By 1994, from, from 1994 through the last World Cup in 2014, in other words, over the course of six World Cups in 20 years, the United States sort of oscillated between being eliminated in the first round and making it as far as the quarterfinals in 2002. But the difference between success and failure was often very thin. So the 98 team finished in the final 30, was finished 32 out of 32 teams and has often been made fun of. They actually looked very promising before that world, before that world cup. And they, but they lost all three games, but they hit the post you know, against Iran. And if they had scored that goal, they probably win. They probably go on to win that game. And maybe the rest, of it, it looks very different. On the other hand, the lauded 2002 team that, made it all the way to the quarterfinals could easily have been eliminated in the first round if, Pol- if, if South Korea and Portugal had just played for a tie, which they surely should have done it, it rather than, you know, rather than actually going to go all out for a win, which is their, which was to the credit of South Korea, by the way, but it was very, it was very unusual. International soccer is much more cynical than that normally. In other words, the difference between a team that's lauded and a team that's pilloried to, to the extent that any team has ever pilloried in the U S is very small, right? The difference is since 2014, we, we, we had a team that was basically a B minus team between 1994 and 2014. Some World Cups, it might rise to B or B plus. Some World Cups, it falls to C or worse. But it was basically a team. We were, we were sort of a consistent fixture. And we're one of only eight countries, believe it or not, to make the final 16, three of the last four World Cups. But no one's ever seriously thought we could win a World Cup again, with the possible exception of 2002, because we got all the way to the quarterfinals and more than held our own with Germany. Um, so there was this kind of sort of level, slight variations, a little bit of luck, et cetera, but we were at that same level. But now there's been a decline, and we had this immediate generation, like I mentioned, the 23 to 27-year-olds. It was just, some, you know, I don't, I don't think anybody has a real causal understanding of why this occurred, why, why all of a sudden we didn't produce anyone. But now we seem to have a, maybe our best generation led by Christian Pulisic coming through, right? But that still begs the larger question which is why has why aren't we producing? We don't know how good this next generation is going to be. We have one player right now who looks like he might be the kind of player who could play for most other national teams at the highest level. But that's not going to win you a World Cup. That's not going to put you in contention for a World Cup. What do we have to do to, to go from being a B-minus soccer nation to being a, a soccer nation that ranges between, say, B-plus and A? Right? And what are the obstacles that we're facing to do that now? I think that's the question the issue that needs to be addressed. So who are the folks that need to get their act together on this and where are the, the issues from your perspective? Okay. Well, let's start with the issues and then we'll talk about how the institutions can, can serve them. The first issue is, and this is not an easy problem. The biggest problem is, is still that we are not a soccer culture. And I mean that in two levels. One is we don't have passion for the game like the rest of the world does. So imagine what would have happened if there was an American football world cup and the U S was eliminated on like they were on Tuesday. Can you imagine the hue and cry that would occur if that's like, you know, <laughs> if something like that happened? And, and of course, the game would have been on all the major networks. This game was broadcast on BN Sports with, with by the way, the worst soccer announcing in the history of mankind. And it was, it was you know, it, it basically, in other words, it was on the margins of, of TV broadcasting. And yeah, that within the soccer community, there's sadness. Yes, NBR done a story about it. But let, let me put it this way. When Italy was eliminated from the 1966 World Cup, they returned home and they had to divert the plane from Turin to Genoa because there were so many angry fans. And as it was, a few thousand amassed in Genoa, a thousand and pelted them with rotten tomato and eggs. 
Now, I'm not commending rotten tomato and eggs, but that's passion. And if, if, and if American players felt that kind of pressure, I think, you, you know, if we had that kind of passion for the sport and interest and pressure, it would translate, right? But we, we don't. The other way in which it, that comes out directly is in the rest of the world, kids dribble balls to school in our, in, in, or to soccer practice. In our country, the ball stays in your bag until you get to soccer practice, right? We don't have the same cultural passion for the game like kids do say for basketball where a magic johnson wake woke up every saturday and went down to the courts from 8 a.m in the morning till eight o'clock at night and so that's a that, that the, the second related issue to that is we don't have that much soccer intelligence and 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 the the, the quality of coaching at the u10 level you know yet for young kids is terrible and you know most of the time and so, so you have this real issue of it. Let me put it this way. Iceland has 325,000 people or so. They qualified for the World Cup. The U.S. with 325 million didn't. By the way, Iceland had to qualify in Europe, which is much more difficult. But Iceland, they don't allow you to coach U10 players unless you get a B license from the European governing body for soccer, UEFA. Right. So right away, the coaches are forced to have more tactical nous and, and understand how to develop players. In the United States, anybody can coach. And I've, I, I have a lot of, I have friends who coach soccer who aren't soccer people, but no one seems to care, right? And, and, and it shows in the quality of the, of the coaching that these players are getting. So that's the, the you know, one, the, the, that's a real difficult problem. Now, one of the things institutionally that could be done to address that is the United States Soccer Federation has $100 million, a lot of it, which, by the way, was gained from the 2018 World Cup. And maybe, maybe one, good, one good that could come out of that irony is to really think about systematically how you can train coaches, especially at what, what's called the base level, the six to 12 year old level, to actually better prepare their players. So you might, it might be that you force that you work with local youth sports organizations to actually get the right videos to them, to make it, make them available on YouTube, to make licensure compulsory. You have a hundred million dollars. The United States is a big country, but with a, if you put a fraction of that money, say 10 million or something, I suspect you could get, pretty far with it. Second thing related to that is soccer players, because so much of the game is about touch and skill and using the ball. You need to have, we need to find a way to get our best coaches working much more extensively with base level players, as opposed to, I think they're called the growth level players between 13 and 17. If you don't get kids playing soccer between the ages of 16 and 12, they're never going to become great world-class players. I could, maybe someone will prove me wrong, but every biography I've ever read of a great soccer player was someone who played the game passionately between the ages of six and 12. So you have to find a way to stoke that passion or work with kids who already have that passion. So, and I think that's, there's no, you know, I I gave one example of how they could make the coaches more qualified. This is a, you know, this is a a much more complex problem. And I think it's about trial and error and finding ways to constantly look for ways to, by the USSF and by the MLS, by MLS, to promote cultural intelligence, better quality soccer announcing, Sh- educational show where they, shows where they break down the game and show what kind of mistakes led to goals or, 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 or what kind of good play you know, led to scoring goals, right? Things like that allow that, I mean, if you listen to it, let me put it this way. When you read a, a, a soccer report in the U.S., it is so different than reading one in England. And when you listen to the quality of comments on talk shows from a Ducks game and the, and the intelligent points fans make about, the quarterback play or the way the defense is schemed, and you compare that to the kind of commentary you hear after a Timbers loss in Portland, it's night and day difference. So it's, you know, we're getting, we're way better than we were 20 years ago, but we have to build a culture with that's built around passion, 
critical understanding of the game. And therefore, all that will lead to expectations and desire on the part of players to become great players in a way they don't now. Maybe it'll start dribbling balls to school and, and, and having the ball at their feet all the time as, just doing, as opposed to just doing it when they get to practice. And that's a lot on the formal, but what about the informal? And I say this having traveled fairly extensively to Europe the last couple of years and going to visit places like Ajax and Berlin Hertha and Bayern Munich and all of this. And one of the things that became really apparent is that every neighborhood, there are multiple pitches and they're not just your traditional, you know, football pitch, but there are ones in the middle of a basketball court where you have the goal built right into the fencing and all of these small opportunities where you could play pickup soccer and, and, and do these kind of things beyond the formal. And so, you know, the coaching, as you identified, has to be an important element, but what about what kinds of things can you do to seed the culture to make it part of people's regular experience to go out there and play? It's a, it's a low equipment sport in a lot of ways uh, compared to American football. Why, why isn't that happening? Yeah. Uh, well, I think Sunil Jalati had a nice way of putting this problem, which he said, the problem is how do you structure unstructured? And what he means is we need to have more unstructured play, but how, how do we, how do they as a, as a governing body, as a, as a structured organization, encourage that. And, 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 and again, I don't having final answers on this are harder to come by because at the end of the day, you can, a lack of structure only works if there's desire on the part of kids to play. So what you can do is create what I'll call passive structures. So for example, and this is starting to happen in places like San Antonio, they have futsal fields that they're building in the middle of cities. Now, futsal is different because the ball is a different texture and it's, and it's much different than indoor soccer and it encourages more technical skill and ball skill than does indoor soccer. So what you can do is build that facility and make it available. And they, and indeed that's one of the things they can do is work with, you know, is, is think about how do we put those kind of facility, you know, make those kind of facilities available. There are tennis courts that are better, that, that are there for people, the people who want to play tennis. Why can't there be futsal courts available for people to play soccer. And by the way, it requires far less, as you point out, far less equipment than baseball, basketball in a sense, because you don't have to worry about the hoop in the net and all that, right? It's relatively simple. Soccer, that's part of why it's the world's game. And so you have to, what you can't, like I said, I call it passive structure. What you need to do is create an environment where kids can just play by play. And it might mean, for example, at certain ages, as long as they're playing soccer, you don't even bother to coach them. You just let them play and you make sure there's adult supervision there in case something bad is bad is happening. Either the players are really badly misbehaving or that, or there's some, there's some third party, an intruder or something who's bothering them. But other than that, you just let them actually play the game, create a space where parents feel good about their kids going there. Um, this though segues into a really important issue that about U S soccer, which is one of our, maybe our biggest single problem is we have a pay for play model. And so overwhelming amount of resources in our game at this point at the youth level are going towards enticing the parents who can afford the multi-thousand dollar yearly fees to have their kids play the game. And this again is one of those areas where the, I don't think they're, they're, the free market will not solve this problem. Matter of fact, the free market is what has created a political economy where it makes sense. If you're a youth coach to take a, 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 a say, a, you know, $7,500,000 a year salary to coach kids whose parents can afford to pay that kind of money. So interestingly, when you look at American football and basketball players compared to North, they, they, they fall to the left of the bell curve in, in terms of socioeconomic status, the players on the, on the U S national team, not surprisingly fall on the right side of the bell curve in terms of socioeconomic status. So we're choosing kids 
who who can who you know they're largely are coming out of this pay for play system and what they do and so they're we're not identifying all the possible kids who could be who could actually contribute we're not nurturing those kids because they simply can't afford them and there are other there's so many other obstacles in terms of time commitments for example the pay for play model requires a lot of travel well that's a huge obstacle if you're from a working class or a poor uh, for, or a poor family right and so again i think ussf has to really think about and, and you know how can we fund something you know how can we think of creative solutions like in big cities travel shouldn't be necessary if you're in a city like houston or chicago why do you need to travel to find good quality competition it it might be a real problem for rural areas but in urban areas there should be enough good competition from within your own community to play that way and part of the reason there's not right now and say kids from portland have to travel so much is because we're not actually reaching out into the latino communities in the suburbs around portland right and so if you you've got to figure out how in this case the free market is not a solution you need to think about how govern how the governing body can intervene in a way that they compel coaches it might even mean subsidizing their salaries because most coaches want to coach the best players they don't want to coach they want to, they don't want to coach a kid who who's, who just shows up with the ball at practice they want to coach the kid who dribbles the ball to practice but i'd like to good luck explaining to your your partner that you're going to take a $25,000 a year pay cut so you can coach higher quality kids in the long run right and so there needs to be a real conversation among major league soccer the ussf nike adidas all the other shareholders about how we can fund a system that encourages the best coaches to work with the with the best players and this would solve i i would say the last huge structural issue which is we have kids who are very passionate about soccer who are very good at soccer who are being marginalized precisely because of the pay for play model and that is latinos right and so there and so we really we need to think about how we can do outreach to those kids and we need to experiment with reaching out to the, the to African American community. Think of all the talented African American kids who are too small to play baseball, I mean too small to play football or basketball and by the way largely don't care about baseball now. And who would love to play a game like soccer once they got a chance they had a chance to culturally do it. That futsal court in the middle of Harlem might all of a sudden you know generate interest if you just prime the pump a little and think of the kids that how many kids could come through our system. who would do that. So there's a story about Brianna Scurry who is a, a goalie on the 1999 Women's World Cup team that won the World Cup and she's African American. She was she was playing in the inner city. She grew up in the inner city. She was playing basketball, volleyball, things like that. And then her family moved to the suburbs and right away she started playing soccer and look what happens immediately with that opportunity. All of a sudden she embraces that sport. She becomes our starting goalkeeper. So think of how many unbelievably talented kids who just aren't going to you know with all due respect to the to the Isaiah Thomases of the world there aren't many many kids who are 58 who are going to be brilliant basketball players there are, there are a lot of Isaiah Thomases who might make fantastic soccer players we just have to find a way to reach out to them and again i don't think there's a, a simple solution to this but we do have resources here now the game is big enough where we have resources and i think there's a, a need for a lot of experimentation and investment and you're going to and you need to think about how you prime that pump to get the kids to play how you can get them to get the coaching how they can come to realize what huge financial opportunities there could be both in the United States and abroad to make this happen and not not to over simplify but it sounds like one of your big call to actions here is for all the stakeholders to get together and figure out how to break this country club model that's developed for a sport that's been the people's sport all around the world and here it's become a niche country club on par with tennis or something like that Yeah, no, and I think I I do think we need to ask 
is MLS, can, is, are there things that Major League Soccer can be can do to get over that country club attitude? You know, they basically Major League Soccer is a cartel, and 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 they and they've done a lot of things really right. They, you know, like soccer is not facing an existential crisis. Soccer isn't going anywhere. In Major League Soccer, the stability of the league has been a huge part of that equation. They average nearly 22,000 fans a game right now. They play in very lucrative soccer-specific stadia. So they're, 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 and they're, serving in, they're serving as a foundation. But here's what Major League Soccer isn't doing. One is they're not getting good TV ratings. The ratings are less than they are for the English Premier League, which tells you underneath it all, American soccer fans understand quality, even if they don't understand the game as well as one might like. This, this, the second thing is, let's take the Timbers. And the Timbers, admittedly, are, are maybe the model case for this. But they have a 20,000-seat stadium, a 10,000-person season ticket waiting list. They're now going to expand the seating to 30,000. Yet they don't spend, in the rest of the world, they would be spending a much higher percentage of that, that revenue acquiring new players. Yet in, but, you know, yet in our model, why would they want to do that? They're a fantastic business. They loved the idea of a salary cap, and, uh, at least a loose salary cap with cost controls. But is a loose salary cap with cost controls in the best interest of the, of the United States men, Nash, men's national team or the interest of growing soccer generally? Or even if for even for MLS in the long run, if you want to get better TV ratings than the Premier League, and you should, you play at a better time of the day, and it's our own local game, you're going to have to eventually produce players of that quality, and that means you're going to have to compete in the global market. So I think the Major League Soccer should really think about putting more money into acquiring better players because that would actually make it so that the American players who are playing would benefit from better competition. Also, the better the quality, the more interest it's going to generate in the United States. And so I, I think that they, there is a real need for for Major League Soccer to cons- you know and, and, and maybe the need for some pressure by the USSF to get Major League Soccer to forego profits right now is at every possible turn and and invest in the long term future of the game because that's going to make I, I really think soccer has a chance in fifteen or twenty years to be every bit as big as any sport and when I say that I mean them I mean the NFL because I think the NFL. As, as popular as it is, is actually facing existential crises that are that are going to that are going to become bigger and bigger over the next decade or two. So there's a huge opportunity here, but but you're going to ha- it's not going to happen when you don't work in a when you try to eschew the market at every opportunity. Soccer is a global game, and the cartel model that's worked so well for football, basketball, baseball in the United States simply will not work with soccer. There's a real limit to it. It has served a useful purpose so far, creating a foundation for soccer. And that's, I want to give MLS all due credit for that. I think this go slow approach has worked, but at some point, and I think it's sooner rather than later, they're going to need to take that leap of faith if, to actually turn it into a real major league and spend the kind of money that is spent in leagues around the world to get, you know, to get the best quality players there. And I think that, and that, that'll also lead to, we'll never, that would also lead the United States men's national team doing far better than they, they have in this last cycle and, and, and they have in the last 25 years. You know, to your point, it's a critical recognition to realize that you aren't the premium product in your sport and you can't create that closed market in the way that you have for the NBA and the NFL and Major League Baseball, where you would always be the one acquiring talent because that's the place where everyone wants to go to showcase themselves. And Major League Soccer isn't that, despite doing a lot of things really, really well. Um, they've come a long way since that press conference that we used to ridicule where – they talked about being one of the top 
leagues in the world and five people showed up from the media. It's, it's come a long way, but there's still challenges ahead as you've identified. Yeah, no, and I think that's the, 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 there's, I think we've now reached a point where there's a foundation in place that there wasn't and, and MLS has probably been the biggest single player in creating that foundation, right? That we have these, not only do we, we have, there's a sport averaging 22,000 in the 23 or so major league soccer cities, but there are cities like Indianapolis that are averaging 17,000 a game who aren't even major league, having, don't even have major league franchises. In other words, there's real genuine grassroots interest in the sport, not only from a playing point of view, but for the first time from a spectating point of view. And so I think that opens up possibilities that didn't exist anywhere before. And of course, the key here is TV ratings. Right now, as much as attendance has increased, TV ratings for Major League Soccer remain stagnant. And the article, the leap of faith I'm suggesting on their part is, and I admit it's hard to back up with empirical evidence. You got to sort of, you've got to try, but you can't prove it till you try. And that is, you need, if you get, let's say you all of a sudden start getting players who would be good enough to play in, in Serie A or the Bundesliga and they come to the United States. Okay. We were, I'm pretty confident attendance will go up, but will TV ratings go up to justify that expenditure? And that's the real question that major league soccer needs to consider. But I, my, my argument with them is push the envelope on that, right? In other words, really don't look at your short-term business concerns. Think about what this could be, you know, and, and, and the NFL is an instructive example. In 1946, the NFL's average attendance was 20,000 a game. By 1960, it went up to 40,000 a game. I don't see any reason Major League Soccer can't duplicate that. No, by the way, in 1946, football was a friend, pro football was absolutely subordinate, not only to baseball, but to college football in the United States. And 15 years later, by the, by the, you know, it was, it was already on the verge of becoming the biggest sport in the United States. And so I, I, I think we always had this slight idea that soccer is always going to be a minor sport. But when you see the level of grassroots interest that's, that's there and the fact that many kids now are not going to be able to play American football when they're, you know, because, of the, because of the physical demands the game and the risk of concussions, soccer has a really huge opportunity to become a, a major player in a way it never did before. And so I think that the owners of Major League Soccer, are gonna, I, I think, are going to have to acknowledge that that's not going to happen on their current model, that they need to take that leap to the next level. They did it when they used the designated player 10 years ago and they brought over David Beckham and that took us, that took them to a new level. The next level is to say, you know what, we're going to allow franchises like Portland, Seattle, the galaxy, the, you know, the, the, et cetera, to go ahead and start spending like they would if they were European clubs, because I think they have enough interest to generate that. Yeah, and to your point, obviously the grassroots involvement is there. People are playing the sport at a young age. And then you're also getting huge consumption of international soccer. You know, all of the leagues that you've mentioned as competitors to the MLS um, are absolutely seeing both uh, the U S and China as their two biggest growth opportunities for, for viewership and fans. So folks are watching on TV and they're growing and that market is going to keep increasing. And can the U S retain the interest and grow it um, given that, whole dynamic as well right yeah no i mean we really have well i think what's different before is we had we, we were always told about the tens of millions of kids playing now we have tens of millions of people going to games and they're and we have tens I and mean, we have millions of people watching on tv if you count the global product right you have more tons of fans watch mexican games right there's the, in the european games of outdraw mls in other words at the end of the day Fans recognize quality, and if you, produ if you produce a quality product, I think now we can say 
that you will be rewarded financially for doing so. But that means making Major League Soccer part of acknowledging that you have to be part of the global economy. You can't try to isolate yourself from it. Very interesting, Ken. Why don't we wrap there? I think, you know, for sure, if you're uh, an exec at Fox Sports, you're hoping to get your hands on some of the recommendations you said. In the meantime, in the short term, they're going to have to try and market. If you're MLS, you're hoping to market individual players who are on other international teams because they're not going to be on the U.S. men's national team and get any airtime because they're not in the tournament. We let, let, let me put it this way. Let's hope we don't have this conversation again in four years. <laughs> and we're, we're actually having a conversation about how, what, how, how the, we've, you know, we've, we've seen real growth and evolution. Change, yes, change, Mr. Galati and Mr. Arena, in the system four years from now that actually is benefiting you, you, the, the United States Soccer Federation, the U.S. national team, and Major League Soccer in the long run. Are in, uh, the interests they share have a ton in common, but they're going to have to have to be some acknowledgement in the short term that there's going to there's going to be some tension, and we need to favor what's going to produce the best quality soccer. Period. Great. Well, thank you, Ken. Appreciate it as always. Okay. Well, thank you, Josh.